Thank you, Ashton, and good morning. Welcome to worship at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. My name's Eric, and I get to pastor down here. Going to start off a little bit differently this morning as we are going to re-enter our sermon series through the book of Joshua. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you and invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. But as we get prepared to do that, I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer. I just want us to pray together. Father in heaven, yet present by your Spirit, present by your Spirit indwelling these, your people. I ask, God, that in these moments that we have together, gathered in this place, that you would remind us that we are not merely speaking audible words out into the ether, but we are boldly approaching the throne of the living God who hears, who heeds, and who heals. And so whatever else is vying for our attention, whatever else is pulling on our affection, God, would you reveal yourself bigger to every heart and head in this place this morning, that you are worth every amount of focus we can muster for the time that we have. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who is in the soul vibrating with a static that isn't quite sure how the rest of this day or this week is going to go, that you would bring peace. For those of us, Father, who are perhaps looking at the calendar year before us and wondering how is this year going to go, would you bring peace? For those of us, Father, who are simply in need of a word and embrace from you by your word among your people, would you do precisely that? Reveal to us what you would have us to know. Change us, Father. Not an empty request, but this is your purpose. This is your plan for your people. So I pray these things boldly in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, welcome to Sunday. It is not the weekend. I've said this before. I rant and I rave and I do all preacher scream. I want to sort of, if I can, in a microcultural way in the church, remind us of what the church said for thousands of years and somehow about 100 years ago in the West, we changed it. This is not the weekend. This is the first day. This is the Lord's Day where we openly proclaim that Jesus is alive. That's why we meet on Sundays. So I hope you had a great weekend. This is how we begin the rest of our week in view of the fact that Jesus is alive. Now I want us to talk through Scripture that affirms and that absolutely uh, amplifies that truth. But I want to start with a, a story that is perhaps familiar to some of you, maybe all of you, I don't know. There's a great story from several years ago about Winston Churchill, sort of the guy whose, whose legend has eclipsed his actual life. The story goes that on October 29th, 1941, in the middle of World War II, Churchill was just feeling beleaguered and he was feeling just sort of buried by all of his responsibilities, by what was going on, what was happening in the war with his people, with his nation. And he just wanted to go back to his alma mater, the Harrow School. So right in the middle of World War II, October 29th, 1941, he wanted to hear the old songs. And, and so he goes to the school and the headmaster has told all of the students our leader of Britain, the defender of Britain is coming, and he's an alum of our school. He's a product. He's one of our very own, and he's an incredible speaker, a gifted orator. Make sure you have pen and paper and write down everything he says. Be ready. 
And Churchill comes in and he sees the student body and he ascends the lectern and he grabs it and he says this. Never give up. Never. Never. Never give up. Ever. 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 Never give up. And then he sat down. And the headmaster was kind of like, okay, well, that was pretty easy. And we want that story to be true, except that it isn't. There's a similar story where Kurt Vonnegut gives a commencement address at a graduation in 1997. He says, ladies and gentlemen of the graduating class of 1997, wear sunscreen. And then he sits down. It's a great story. It's just not true. We sort of want those portable little things that we can remember and take with us because we like tweets and we like TikToks and that's fine. But the reality is, is that Vonnegut gave a very long commencement address. The reality is that Churchill gave a very long speech. It's just that those things aren't often memorable, but they do contain a great deal of truth. Well, we're in the book of Joshua, and it's lengthy, but there are some refrains, there are some repeated phrases that are intended to encourage us and to amplify our cognition of God's plan and his power and his purpose and his peace in the lives of his people. The theme of the book of Joshua is that God is our salvation. That's the name of the book. Yahshua means God is our salvation. And then there is this little refrain that sort of bubbles over and over and over again throughout the book and is do not be afraid. Since God is our salvation, then God's saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And so that actually sets us up for our big idea for the morning as we're going to be looking in Joshua chapter 11. And got your Bibles, I encourage you to go to Joshua chapter 11. It sets us up for our big idea and it goes like this. God's sovereignty secures our serving. Now I hope to explain that and make that make sense if I can. There's a portable little expression, a little application, a big idea that we can hopefully all maintain at least until we get to Long John Silver's to remind ourselves that God's sovereignty secures our serving. We are not merely hamsters on a wheel. We are not merely sprinting with all our might on the treadmill of pointlessness. God is sovereign and we have a responsibility and it matters. Now, we are in the book of Joshua. We started this sermon series in the book of Joshua way back last year, and then we took a nice needed pause through the Advent season. We're back in chapter 11. Just to remind you of what's been going on, Moses was leading the children of Israel all through the wilderness for almost 40 years. Moses has died. The mantle of leadership has been passed on to Joshua, whose name means God is our salvation, or God saves, or God is salvation. The first five chapters are all about the nation of Israel entering into the land. Chapters 6 through 12 are about the conquest of the land. Lord willing, next week when we gather on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, we will wrap up the conquest in chapter 12. Chapters 13 to the end of the book are all about the distribution and the assignments, the allotments of the different portions of tribal lands to the nation of Israel. So this morning we really get to the actual conclusion of the action narratives before we get into Joshua preaching to the people. What's happened so far is Joshua has led the people across the Jordan River miraculously. He's conquered Jericho. And when I say he does, has, I mean God has. 
The people of Israel really had hardly anything to do with that whatsoever. They tried to conquer Ai, they sort of failed, and then God gives it to them anyway. Then the Gibeonites sort of trick them and dupe them into covenant, and they enter into an agreement not to to attack the Gibeonites, who are part of the Hivite people, and so they protect them. And a southern coalition of kings musters together, and they all get ready for battle, ready to destroy Israel, and God says, hold my what, chalice of communion? I don't know what God says. And Israel musters, and God pretty much wipes out the southern half of the Canaanites. Now, that's an amazing thing. And each time, Israel retreats back to Gilgal, their headquarters that is just on the west bank of the Jordan River. Now, we, we, we read these passages, and it seems like it just happens one day, and then the next day, and then it's over. No, 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 this is happening over years, by the way. But there they are. They are all gathered together in Gilgal. The southern half is complete. I want you to think of the the land of Canaan sort of like Texas, if you will. That's right, the promised land. Come on, work with me here, right? I want you to think of it like this, that that Texas has been sort of cut in half by I-20. So where we are in the narrative, everything south of I-20 has been conquered. Bye-bye, Austin. Bye-bye, Houston. Bye-bye, San Antonio. Bye-bye, Laredo. It's all been swooped up, and it's now under the control of God's chosen people, Tyler. That's right. It's only a matter of time. But now it's time to swing north and see what's north of Bucky's because we got to go north into the northern half of the state of Texas. What are we going to find up there? So if you've got your Bibles, let's begin reading. Joshua chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph. Now, I will tell you in all of my depravity, I'm so thankful that Ashton read Psalm 121. I really wanted her to read this just to kind of watch. as she. <laughs> the problem is she would have crushed it and done better than I have, so I gave her Psalm 121. What's going on? We're going to get this sort of response. All the things that happened in chapter 10 with the conquest of the southern half of Canaan doesn't happen secretly in a vacuum. It's not like it was spread out across thousands of miles. All the kings of the north are very much aware of what was going on in the south. And truth be told, they could have and they should have joined together. Not just five kingdoms of the south, but if all the north would have joined together, that would have been a better chance. But truth be told, it wouldn't have mattered. Because if you recall in chapter 10 that we looked at way back November 20th, It wasn't the Israelites that wiped out the southern armies. It was God raining down stones from heaven, and that's a bad day. So it wouldn't have mattered if they had joined up, but they didn't know that that was going to happen, so they were putting it off. We're just going to wait and see what happens with them down there. Maybe they will weaken or maybe even wipe out this invading nuisance that is Israel. Let's wait and see. But it's actually the other kings of the south that are completely obliterated. And so this guy, the king of Hazor, says, we've got to do something. And so he begins to send out messengers as fast as he can. And you kind of have to understand what's going on geographically. I think we have a map. If it works, awesome. If not, no problem. Now we're talking about the north. He sends out these messengers because he's Hazor, the biggest city of the northern half of Canaan. And he starts to send out messengers concentrically, very, very close. And then he sends out another wave of messengers a little bit further out. And then another wave of messengers a little bit further out. Now, Hazor is absolutely huge. Jericho was about eight acres, had 13,000, 14,000 people maybe. Megiddo is about 14 acres, walled cities, but 
pretty small. Hazor is over 200 acres, almost 50,000 people. It's the DFW Metroplex. And the king of Hazor, Jabin, says, we can't let this happen. We're going to make our stand. Now, that's, that's just such a picture of human strength and arrogance and depravity. They've heard the stories about God parting the Red Sea when this throng of humanity comes out of Egypt with nothing and somehow makes it into the land of promise. They've heard the stories about the crossing of the Jordan, how it was piled up in either direction for 27 miles of dry land. They've heard what happened at Jericho. They've heard what happened at Ai. They've heard what the Gibeonites did. They've heard about these other southern kingdoms being completely wiped out. But we will not have this man, this God, as our king. And unfortunately, that refrain in fallen humanity has been echoing for millennia. So this Jabin sends out messengers. And the kings who were in the northern hill country, and that's up uh, on the Golan Heights, what we call Bashan. Uh, that's up around um, the southern plain just below Mount Hermon, which is between Lebanon and Syria today. And then the Arabah, the Arabah, you'll see that all over and over again. The Arabah means essentially the Great Rift Valley that starts in Africa and goes all the way up into Eastern Europe and Asia. It's the Jordan River itself is that low depression. It's called the Arabah, and it runs the entire vertical length north-south of Eastern Israel. South of Kinneroth. Now, that is a strange little expression. This is the Bible's best attempt to take Hebrew that has been translated into Greek and try to make sense of it in English. In Luke chapter 5, we see it referred to as uh, Kinesaret. This is essentially the area of the Galilee. Way up north where Jesus spends a lot of his earthly ministry is the Galilee, Kinneroth. It's from the Hebrew term Gennesaret, which means harp because if you had an aerial view, the Sea of Galilee would look sort of like a harp, kind of, sort of. So I want you to get a feel geographically of where we are, way, way, way up in the north, the Arabah, the Jordan River Valley, south of Kinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naboth Dor on the west. That's over almost to the Mediterranean Sea near Mount Carmel. Now, this is a lot of expanse that this guy and Hazor are sending out messengers all over the place. To the Canaanites in the east, and the West, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Mosquitoites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Mizpah is like a valley from a crater. All the way up to Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, when we visit there, is always covered in snow. You can ski on Mount Hermon. It's the highest mountain in the Middle East, right between Lebanon and Syria. There's this little finger of Israel that goes up. That far north from I-20 all the way up to the border with Oklahoma in the panhandle, okay? You see what we're saying? So what's he done? The king of DFW has mustered people from El Paso and Midland and Odessa and from Lubbock and Wichita Falls as far north as Amarillo. They're all meeting together kind of around Plano. Track with me. I want you to see this. Why in the world does the writer of Joshua go to so much trouble to tell us all of this? Couldn't he just say he got all the folks from up north and they jumped in the truck and they just waited for war? I mean, parchment's not, it's not cheap back then. Why does he go to all the trouble of giving us all these names, all these places? Well, first of all, the Bible's goal is not efficiency. The Bible's goal is to reveal to us who God is and therefore who and what we are. If you're an ancient reader, you're reading all this, and as each name is read, you go, nope, 
nope, nope, I'm out, I'm out. This is scary. The Southern Kingdom thing, that was a big deal. That was pretty cool. But this, this is the entire northern half. And oh, by the way, I haven't even got to this point. They have nukes. <laughs> now, now, time has gone by. They've settled back in Gilgal. The seasons have changed. The rains have come and gone. They've tended their crops. They've seen their families. They've had worship festivals, all these kinds of things. But now these kings are going to muster. And there's lots and lots and lots of them. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore. I'm not a geologist. That seems like a lot of people. <laughs> like the sands that are on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Okay, the Israelites are still fighting with silly putty and gum. That's it. They, I mean, they've certainly taken some, some weaponry when they conquered in the southern half of Canaan, but they're not mechanized. They're not trained. They don't have anything. These people in the north, they've got horses and they've got chariots. The chariots were like the tanks of the ancient ward, world. Ancient Jewish historian Josephus estimated in this battle there were 300,000 foot soldiers of the Canaanites, that they had 10,000 mounted cavalry and 20,000 chariots. And these chariots were light and they were fast. And they could be disassembled and reassembled if they needed to cross water. And so I just want you to think about 300,000 foot soldiers. You got 10,000 horseback soldiers, 20,000 chariots. And here you come up and you got a deck of baseball cards. You're the Israel, you got nothing. You got absolutely nothing but a smile, all right? It's absolutely terrifying to these people. Verse 5, and all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Here is where we're going to make our stand. We're going to drive these people out once and for all, and nature abhors a vacuum, so when they're gone, all of Canaan will be ours. And then they did this, because <laughs> that's just what people do, I'm told. It's not in the Bible. You just kind of have to work with me. They, they did the thing which we don't ever actually do out loud and in action either. But that's kind of what's happening in our hearts when we resist and when we rebel. They're all going to gather together at the waters of Merom. Now, if you tried to go and find the waters of Merom today, you will be disappointed. There's nothing there. That was a very small little lake about 10 to 15 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a swampland. It was a marshland. When it was rainy season, it would actually collect, and it would be a little bit of water there, but it was just a swampy marsh. More than likely, this is not at all where Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the rest of these kings want to actually have the battle. It's just a rallying point because there is water there. You're not going to find it today because in 1948, when Israel, again, took the land politically— one of the first things they did is go up to what's called the Hula Valley, north of the Sea of Galilee, and they planted eucalyptus trees to drain the swamp. No, not politically, literally drain the swamp because it was just a mosquito haven full of malaria and gross. And so they soaked it all up so that they could build and so they could actually have agriculture in that area. But at the time of Jabin, king of Hazor, he gathers all of his troops and all of his coalition near the waters of Merom. Did I mention it was marshy and swampy? Huh, keep that in mind. Verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, here's sort of the crux. Here's what we would call the hermeneutical hinge of our passage. Here's why this chapter is in the Bible, we might say. 
We've seen all of this expression of worldly power as the king of DFW has Midland, Odessa, Wichita Falls, Longview, Marshall, maybe even Carthage, as well as Lubbock and Amarillo. Worldly power with high technology, lots of numbers. That's worldly power expressing itself. And now heavenly power. A person is going to express himself. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. Now, more than likely, years have passed, or at least a year has passed since the conquest in the south. Joshua is at Gilgal on the western banks of the Jordan River. To get up to Meram, it is a five-day hike with all of your supplies, all of your soldiers, all of your provisions, all of your animals, perhaps. It's a five-day hike, and you're climbing up 4,000 feet in vertical elevation. It's a hard, difficult climb. And all you're hearing about the whole way after five days is, man, it's, it's Hazor. Man, it's, it's Mitzpah. Man, it's the Hivites of Hermon. It's all these things. And the people are beginning to wilt. Despite all the things that have happened, they're beginning to wonder and they're beginning to worry. Have you ever been there? Of course you have. Despite all the faithfulness of God, when time passes, we begin to wonder. I know he has come through. I don't know that he will come through. I don't know that he's actually paying attention. Maybe he's got somebody else in bigger crisis on the other side of the county or on the other side of the globe. I don't know. And so they begin to wonder. Even Joshua, apparently, God comes to him yet again. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Well, and in this case, God is pretty portable. Do not fear. The most frequent command in Scripture, 359 times, God says to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. And then, I love this so much. Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time, this is where Joshua pulls out his iPhone and says, set a reminder, because <laughs> in 24 hours, there's going to be about a half a million dead dudes. <laughs> in 24 hours, God is so good to give such specificity and precision. Do not fear, for at this time tomorrow, not just like, oh, in the next day or three, or maybe, I don't know, maybe by the next rainy season. No, no, no. By this time tomorrow, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Whoa, what is going on there? This is our big idea all over again. God's sovereignty secures our serving. You see, God says to Joshua, don't be afraid. I'm going to do a thing, and within 24 hours, all of your enemies are going to be dead. Whoosh! Now go get them, tiger. God's done it, and that in no way whatsoever removes our responsibility to do it. Do you understand? Do you see what I'm saying? God's sovereignty secures our serving. Now we're actually unleashed to do the thing that God has called us to do because we know that he is sovereign and he's also good and he's also for us and he also loves us. Now, God says to Joshua, I want you to hamstring their horses and to burn their chariots. What's going on? Well, 45 years ago, God had spoken to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. God knows this is all going to come to pass. And so he had prepared Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, God says, When you go out to war against your enemies, the Canaanites, and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, 
You shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I know how you people, the species of humanity, I know how you count. I know how you assess strength. You do it numerically and technologically. How you should assess strength is one. The one who dragged you almost against your will through death and into life across the Red Sea out of Egypt. Joshua, do not be afraid of them, who they are or how many of them there are. I know what their intentions are. I know the plans that I have for you, Joshua. They are not the point. I am the point. In 24 hours, they're all going to be good. Why does God tell Joshua to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots? Well, 500 years after Joshua, we're going to get a king of Israel named David, and he's going to write in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And we think, more than likely, David has in mind this episode where God has said, I don't want you trusting in horses and chariots. Why does God say, and this is where a lot of animal lovers will just go, click, if you're going to hamstring a horse, I'm out on all this. Hold on, let me explain. To hamstring a horse is not to permanently cripple a horse. On the back legs of a horse, you clip the tendon behind the knee only on the back legs. They can still work, they can still be ridden, they can still do farming and agriculture, but their aggression and their capacity to charge in war is removed from them. So, so it's not torture, it's not inhumane, it's not animal cruelty, it's none of those kinds of things. It's, I don't want you to have these beasts as instruments of war. That's not who you are. Your God goes before you. God is your salvation. Not only that, God knows the hearts of people. Not getting too into it, in the book of Leviticus, we know that the Canaanites <clears throat> were using horses in their worship of the sun and that the horses were not willing participants. I'll just leave it at that. And God says, I do not want you doing that to horses or with horses or using horses like the Canaanites do in their pagan, depraved worship of the sun. Now, tragically, why does God have to say that? Because he knows their hearts. By the time we get to 2 Kings chapter 23, what does Israel have? Tons of chariots, and they've set up worship of the sun using horses in disgusting ways in the very temple of Yahweh. So it's a cautionary tale. And so when we read something like this, we go, gosh, what are the things that I'm so appalled by, disgusted by, that I would never, careful, careful, careful. God knows our hearts, and he has built fences for us. May we, must we not kick them down. So that's what's going on with the horses. It's not just that God is mean. No, he wants them to lean not on their own understanding or on their own might, but on the God who loves them, is with them, and who is for them. Well, verse 7, uh, it's just some of the best literature in all the world. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly. Y you get the sense that however Joshua was hearing God speak, the, the, the audible word was still echoing down the canyon, and Joshua draws his sword and attacks. The way the language is written here, you get the sense that the other northern coalition armies are still just meeting to, to figure out what's going on somewhere around Frisco Plano area up there. They're just still trying to figure out, hey, who's going to go where? Who's going to have what responsibility? How are we going to fan out? What's our tactic going to be? And while they're still figuring this stuff out, after having just marched five days from Gilgal through the night, 
Up 4,000 feet, Joshua and the whole army of Israel just falls on them, just ambushes them, probably in the middle of the night. God said, I've done it. Now go do it. Joshua does it. This is how we live our lives. God's sovereignty secures our serving. It unleashes us to actually live and be who we're supposed to be. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Mizrapot, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung the horses and burned their chariots with fire. And the wages of sin is death. We talked about this last fall. This seems harsh. This seems heavy. Why didn't these people get another chance, 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 chance? They did. They got 400 years plus of seeing evidence of the goodness, the faithfulness, the love, the power, the provision, the purpose, and the peace of Yahweh. And they said, we will not have that God as ours. And so rather than rain down fire and brimstone as he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, God uses the people of, in, of Israel as the instrument of his judgment so that the people of Israel themselves would be reminded and would remember for generations who this God is and what he demands. Do not fear. Can I just say to you, this is not merely God saying, don't be afraid, blah, 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 cover your ears and pretend like everything's all right. No, God's doing theology for us. Do not fear means think rightly about me and that will energize and equip and educate you to think rightly about yourself, which is the fundamental need of every human being ever. To, to now know because of who he is, what he's like, what he wants, I'm now utterly unleashed to do what I was created to do. I have purpose now and therefore I have peace and therefore I have joy and therefore I am exuding meaningfulness and impact and significance and worth to everyone around me. You know what we call that? We call that a kingdom. <laughs> just imagine. When he says do not be afraid, he's not just saying it's okay, have a cookie and go back to bed. He's doing theology so that it actually impacts and influences our daily walking around lives because that's just how good God is. Must we, may we not miss this, please. Well, the battle we don't get a lot of details. I kind of want to hear some slow motion music, some thunderous drum, a slow motion scene where a bomb goes off and the bad guy goes, you know, cartwheeling over a stream. No, no, just, you know, hundreds of thousands of them, gone. Because they're not the point. God is the point. Verse 9, and Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And... Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor. Now, a couple things that are going on here in the narrative. We've still got that map up there somewhere. I don't know if you can see it behind the text there, but I want you to understand the bad guys, the, the North Texans. Can we call them that? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. The North Texans, they've all been attacked in Frisco Plano area. They've split. They've scattered. Some of them split, and they ran all the way to New Mexico. <laughs> they went northwest, Okay. Another detachment of them, they went northeast, what we would call the Golan Heights. So some of them went to Sidon, which is on the Mediterranean coast. Some of them go to the Golan Heights. Joshua sends a detachment to wipe them out, a separate detachment to wipe them out because he does not want them to regroup because the wages of sin is death. 
But then Joshua keeps a detachment of his own, and he goes back down to DFW, to Hazor. Watch what he does here. Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king, that's Jabin, with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. That's the Hebrew term harem, offered to God for, his, for their destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire, utterly destroying it, saying to the rest of the northern parts, remember Jericho got burned to ash to the ground. Hazor was going to serve as the northern version of Jericho. If we can do this, if God can do this to Hazor, trust me, he can do it to wherever you are. If God can wipe out DFW, Winona's not a big deal. All right? That's what God is saying. So he burns Hazor to the ground with fire. Everyone is wiped out, and the wages of sin is death. Now, I hear people talk about this in contemporary context, and they say, that just doesn't seem really fair. I mean, um, if there's a God, how could he do that to somebody? These are the same people, generally speaking, that when there's a disaster... <laughs> or something horrible happens, like a mass shooting, if there's a God, why didn't God do something? Well, please understand, the wickedness and the violence and the debauchery and the depravity of the Canaanites, God was doing something. We don't get to determine God's actions. That kind of God doesn't exist. That kind of God would exist in a little bottle, and we rub it, and we get three wishes. But that's a cartoon. Those aren't real. God is sovereign. He is holy. And all the cities, verse 12, of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone that Joshua burned. So they're going to keep all the other plunder, all the other material goods, and they're going to basically incorporate the livestock, the whatever material goods, homes, houses, livestock, cooking utensils, everything, they're going to go ahead and take it in for themselves as God had planned. And this takes a long time. Verse 14, And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servants, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. This is the refrain that you're going to get, is Joshua did exactly what he had been commanded by Moses and in the law of Moses. Well, verses 16 to the end of the chapter, very briefly, is sort of just a recap, not just of chapter 11. Verses 16 to 23 is a recap of chapters 10 and 11 to show you God's done it. He said he would do it. He did it. Now, this is what God's done. And we're going to get a quick, quick recap of all the conquest of both chapters 10 in the south and 11 in the north. God's done it. Verse 16, so Joshua took all that land, the hill country of the Negev, that's way down south on the desert, and all the land of Goshen, that's even further south, almost to the borders of Egypt, and the lowland and the Arabah, remember that's the Jordan River Valley and everything east of the Jordan, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, that's a big bald mountain near the Dead Sea, which rises towards Seir, that's Edom, uh, where the Edomites were, or where Petra would be today. As far as Balagad, that would be Banias, way up in the north in Caesarea Philippi, and in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon, way, way far up north to the extreme. 
and he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. And the wages of sin is death. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. We read the scripture, these few chapters, chapters 2 through 11, we think, oh, all this just happened in a hot, sweaty summer afternoon. No, no, no. No, no. When we do the math, you figure out all of this actually happens over about seven years. Between six and seven years, somewhere in there. They would go back to Gilgal and they would rest. They would recuperate. They would treat their wounds. They would see their families. They would address their crops. They would have worship festivals. And then in the spring, they would go back out and continue the conquest. So the scriptures sort of conflate it down for us, but it takes place over a very long time. And that's good for us to be reminded of. Sometimes it takes a lot longer than we would like. Verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, those of the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And that's one of those passages that always makes people push back from their Bible and go, wait a second. That doesn't seem fa-fa-fa-fair. God hardened their hearts. And immediately, if you have an ounce of mercy in your being, you wonder, is that what's going on with my friend, my family member, my coworker, my neighbor, my enemy? Is that what's going on there? Well, hold that thought because that is a very important thought. We'll circle back on that in just a moment. Verse 21, and Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country. Now, that doesn't make us shiver and shake like it should. The Anakim were giants. I don't mean they're 30 feet tall, not like that, but they're seven footers at least. The average Israelite at this time is a smooth five foot four, five foot five, weighs about 138 pounds. The Anakim were at least seven footers. They're all Shaquille O'Neal running around out there, Okay. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anav, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. This is such a good bookend. If you read your Bible, you might remember way back in Numbers chapter 13, Moses calls together 12 spies, a spy from each tribe, and he sends them into the land to scatter it all out, and the 12 spies go in at Kadesh Barnea, and the 12 spies come back, and 10 of them go, there's, there, there's giants in there. They're so big, not even God could take them. Ah, there's giants. And Joshua and Caleb go, nah, we can take them. We'll bite them on the shins till they bleed out. Let's go. We've got Yahweh. And the people go, no, no, giants are too big. We can't go in there. Caleb and Joshua say, no, we can take them. Let's go. And they all picked up stones to kill Joshua and Caleb because they did not trust God. And so they took 40 years of lapse in the wilderness. Now, the closing of the second bookend, after the conquest is essentially complete, Joshua goes, oh, yeah, the big fellas. The bigger they are, the bigger target they are. The Anakim, you know what we call that in military warfare? A target-rich environment. Let's go get them. You find out later that, oh, yeah, Joshua and Caleb, who, by the way, are in their 80s. These little 140-pound soaking wet Israel boys, 80-something-year-old dudes with old man strength, they're going in there, and they're whacking giants. Now, this is so good. Don't miss this. God's sovereignty secures our serving. There were none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. 
Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. Dun, dum, dum. Well, those are the low southern coastal cities. Gath, by the way, 500 years later, is where an Anakim named Goliath would come from. He should have finished the job, but he didn't, and it came back, and it bit Israel later. So Joshua took the whole land in some. Not every single Canaanite was exterminated, but he did take the whole land. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Next week, we'll go through a sort of a cataloging of how all that actually went down and why all those things are significant. God's sovereignty secures our serving. How do we apply this strange little completion of the conquest to our everyday lives? I could give you a hundred different implications or applications or principles. I just want to give you three very quickly. Since it is true that God's sovereignty secures our serving, God's done it, therefore we are free to go and do it. Here are three points. Number one goes like this. Trust God, use technology. I want to be as tactical and practical as I can about this. I know we all know this mentally, but sometimes we don't know it practically or experientially. And we certainly don't model what we claim to believe to others all the time. Technology and the tools of our time are wonderful gifts right up until the point when they're not. When we begin to rely on the toys and the trinkets and the technology of our, for our peace and our joy, we're no longer any different than Israel and Judah sticking sun-dedicated horses in Yahweh's temple. We know better, but when I just need a little bit of a dopamine drip, when I need just a little bit of an endorphin scratch, I pick up my device, I look on that social media site, whatever it might be, and that's where I get my peace and my joy and my purpose. That is super well-camouflaged idolatry. Trust God, use technology. We're all after peace and joy and love. And so if we spend all of our time and effort on gadgetry or social media or the latest technology du jour, but never actually tap into the God of the cosmos that loves us and is for us, then we mustn't be surprised when this good God invades that hologram of a life that we've created and presents himself before us. Joshua was told, do not keep any chariots or anything else that might take away Israel's dependence on God's goodness, his faithfulness, or his love. So my question to myself these last couple weeks, is it time for a chariot check? I I don't mean getting the oil of my car changed because I'm only about 15,000 miles past that. I'm saying, is it time for me to do inventory on chariots? And the answer was this piercing ice pick of, yes, there are a lot of chariots that I have reassembled in my life. I want to challenge you very tactically and practically. What are some of the chariots that you have kept? I'm not being preachy and I'm not even meddling. I can just tell you, not as any sort of object of pride or or applause. I have not been on any kind of social media whatsoever for two years. Not because I'm awesome, but precisely because I'm not. (laughs) Because I became the kind of person that was desperate for the little blue thumb. And two years ago, I went through a chariot check and was like, gosh, I am that wretched and depraved of a person that I exist to see if people like me. It's true. So those chariots had to go, two years. I'm not saying you've got to do that. I'm saying I 
am almost positive that the enemy of your soul has coaxed you into parking some kind of chariot in your soul's garage. What is it? Israel quickly departed from their trust in God. And so may this text convict all of us to not go in the same way. Second point. Questions are okay. Worship is best. What am I talking about? I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking through you. Inevitably, you're going to have a conversation with a child, a friend, a coworker, uh, an unbelieving uh, acquaintance, whatever, and they're going, hey, hey, what's the deal with all the killing, all the jihad in the Old Testament, all the slaughter and the genocide? That doesn't sound like the kind of God I want to be a part of. When is a war holy? When God says so, not when an earthly human head of state says so, not when a particular political outlet says so, not when a media talking head says so, a war is holy when God says so. So it is okay for us to question. But when we see passages like God hardened their hearts, we're very quick to accuse God of not being fair. I love how Dale Ralph Davis put it. He put it this way. We arrogantly pride ourselves on being kinder than God, but we only prove that we haven't a clue about what holiness is. And the wages of sin is death. So let me say this again. God had given these people over 400 years to see the evidence of his existence and his goodness and his power and his involvement with his people, but they hardened their hearts against him and his people. There is a time in which, and I don't know what it is, God only knows, that his mercy rises and his judgment rises and his mercy rises and his judgment rises and his mercy rises and there comes a time when the sin of the people ripens, Genesis 15, 16, that he can no longer stay his judgment. There comes that time in the life of a nation, of a people, of a person when judgment eclipses mercy. Pray God. We never experience that. And if you're a believer, you never will. They hardened their hearts. Paul talks about this very thing in Romans chapter 1. We see it in Exodus 4, 4, uh, Exodus 4 to 14, where Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then the verb that's used is that God firms up that hardening. Pharaoh hardened his heart more. God firmed up that hardening. Pharaoh hardened his heart more. God firmed up that hardening. He confirms him in his hardness. Same thing Paul talks about in Romans 1. They harden their hearts. They are given to themselves then. They harden their hearts. God gives them to themselves then. They harden their hearts. God gives them to themselves then. And so, as we say often in this church, the human problem requires a divine solution. Your greatest asset, tool, weapon, if you like, in evangelism is not your clever presentation of a track under a chai latte. It's prayer. It's prayer. I have the faces that swarm through my mind of friends and family that are not believers, and I say, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? Would you do for them what you have done for me? Would you, would you stem the judgment, and would you let your mercy blow through all over? And that's how I pray for people. That's because I'm not that clever. I'm not that articulate. I can't convince or persuade somebody. And if I did, I might not actually be authentic. And they might not be either. And so I pray, God, would you do for them? May their hearts not be hardened. And if they are, would you, the only one that can, would you soften them? And then the next morning, I get up and do the same thing again. 
And you know what? Sometimes it takes a long time. In the case of Joshua and the conquest, seven years, which leads me to our third point. Our timing is not God's timing. And that's because our goals are very often not God's goals for our lives. We want to move through life, accomplishing things to feel valuable and eliminate any hindrance or obstacle so that we can have peace and quiet and joy and pleasure and, quite frankly, a little pocket of sovereignty. Just want to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it and be left alone. Oh, you you talking about like the throne room of heaven kind of a thing. Well, not that. Yes, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. But God's goal for our life is that we increasingly be conformed to the image of the very Son of God, becoming more and more like Him. And so God lovingly, lovingly drops all sorts of obstacles into our lives that we are tempted to address with horses or chariots, whatever the corresponding tools might be in 2023. Now, this life takes as long as this life takes, and it still involves waking up, hugging necks, working wisely, taking out the trash, and gathering together with other believers in worship of God and study of God's Word. What's the rush? He's doing a thing. God's sovereignty secures our serving. We say this frequently because it bears repeating frequently. Practice God's presence in the little things of each day and night and with the people that you love. Make your bed because Jesus is worth it. Not some legal thing that you're a better person than those who don't make their bed. No. Push your chair back in on your table. Why? Because Jesus is worth that. Drive nicely on Broadway. <clears throat> Why? I don't know. Because Jesus is worth that. Practice his presence. This is why our Bible exhorts us to have endurance and what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. That's what we're called to. It's what we're invited into. It's what we are equipped for. God's sovereignty secures our serving. You might have missed it. The very end of verse 15, it gets repeated again in verse 23. And Joshua did exactly what was commanded in the book of the law of Moses. Ish. It's not really in the Hebrew, but you know. He, didn't, he wasn't perfect and he had a sin nature. God is our salvation. And Josh was a great model, but he is no hero. And he didn't have a speech that said, don't give up, don't ever give up. By his own name, he said, God is our salvation. Until the one who was salvation came. And what did this Yeshua, Jesus do precisely what Joshua eleven fifteen and 23 says. He fulfilled the law of Moses in every single way, in thought, word, and deed. And then you know what he does? You know what he does? You know what he, he takes that perfectly completed scorecard of the law of Moses and he gives it to Hivites and Perizzites and Jebusites. Canaanites and mosquito bites and people like me. My God, my God, he has not forsaken us. Now, may we live like that's true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your people. Father, I pray this morning that you would use this word and the power of your spirit to reach, to touch, to teach and even transform every single one of us increasingly in the likeness of your son, Jesus. And if that means conversion, then would you do for that person or persons what you've done for me and for others? 
lead them out of death and into life, that they would lean not on their own understanding or horses or chariots, but on your goodness, your presence, and your provision. Father, we do pray that you would continue in this year, despite resolutions that have already all failed, that you would enable us by your spirit, by your word, surrounded by your people to practice your presence. Because of your sovereignty, our serving is secured. God, thank you for loving us. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.